Welcome to Biota.org Interviews. I'm Tom Barbelay, and today I have the pleasure of talking with Professor Paul Johnson, a Professor of Political Science at the University of Kansas. Professor Johnson, for people not familiar with you, can you please give some discussion to your background and how you got interested in artificial life? I uh, did my graduate work at Washington University of St. Louis, where we were uh, focused on uh, uh, game theory and, and uh, uh, rational choice models of uh, how people behave, but those models are um, very mathematically um, intractable when you introduce uh, heterogeneity or, or uh, a variety of different types of actors or different behavioral premises. And so when I was struggling with some difficult mathematical models, uh, John Casty, who was a professor at the Santa Fe Institute, and he wrote several beautiful books about artificial life. Um, he visited our university and gave a research presentation that talked about uh, complex systems models, the, uh, the so-called uh, Elferol problem, and uh, uh, programming uh, exercises that were being done in Santa Fe and Albuquerque about uh, traffic and uh, maybe soccer players or football players, I can't remember. But uh, that was when I, I seized on the idea that we could use computer representations to um, make more elaborate models of individual people and how they behave and study the uh, aggregative patterns that are observed. Now, you are the, the current maintainer or one of the maintainers of the SWARM project. Mm -hmm. For people not familiar with SWARM, can you please give a kind of SWARM 101 background? Yes, yeah, sure. Um, there's a... There's a really wonderful book uh, called Complexity by uh, Waldrop, and in that book uh, it, it has the personal life stories of Chris Langton and Brian Arthur and Stuart Kaufman. And in that book he describes the development of this idea that uh, our view of uh, systems should be built up from a lot of small, simple components that interact in, in a way so as to uh, develop on an individual basis and then to um, react to their environment and change their environment. So if you really wonder what the idea is and you want to see the very interesting story of some of these great scientists, that book, Complexity, really will help people a lot. So if you think about this idea of having these small, separate components that act according to various principles, you, you eventually arrive at the idea that we could use a computer to design these uh, models. So in the early 90s, I had done my own simulations in Pascal, uh, but I ran, I ran into the problem that there are just too many separate components in a simulation model for a, an individual author to make a model that is useful and also understandable to other people without a uh, some kind of a common framework. So SWARM originally wa was a, uh, supposed to be a common set of concepts and um, model building techniques that would allow us to exchange our findings in a way that is um, scientifically replicable. So um, with, the, w with this idea, the team at the Santa Fe Institute that included uh, the leader was Chris Langton, and there was an employee from uh, John Deere, uh, uh, Roger Burkhardt, 
some staff members, uh, uh, Nelson Minar, uh, Minar, Manor Askenazi, uh, and then later Glenn Rapella, and then Marcus Daniels. These people started fleshing out this this system to to um, uh, describe the the creation and, and development of individual units that do things, and then. Uh, as scholars, we can adjust the things that they do and study the effects that they cause. So uh, if you're not a programmer, I suppose that this is all gibberish to you anyway. You can just imagine uh, some some common game like SimCity 2000 where the uh, little people run about from home to store and back again. You can imagine that a, a, a swarm model is like that, except that um, the guts of it are laid open for the researcher to uh, uh, consider various behaviors that the agents might carry out and study their impact on the on the system. Uh, so then, swarm is, uh, was in a incubator from like 1994 until the release of version 1.0 in 1997. That was the summer that I started learning more seriously about programming and SWARM, and I had a small grant from the National Science Foundation in the U.S. to work on that. Um, very quickly, uh, I realized that one of, the, one of the problems in the SWARM community is that most of the people were good programmers, but not very interested in teaching the people who don't program like me. And so when I would learn new things, I would jot them down expecting that I would teach a class someday, which turned out to be true. So uh, th eventually those things that I wrote down became the frequently asked questions list for Swarm. And then uh, as my programming skills grew, I started contributing small bits to the Swarm language itself, library itself, but also I started uh, making up the um, packages for of Swarm for people who use the Linux operating system. And then uh, in 2000 or so, we, we put together the user guide for Swarm. Uh, so um, after that, my, my role was mainly to um, try to implement new features in, in the Swarm libraries that I wanted to see. And uh, for Swarm, the newest version of Swarm, I put together the new version of example programs that people can use to explore the, the ideas behind Swarm. Now the software itself, Swarm, how has Swarm evolved from Chris Langton and the original group's original thesis into contemporary Swarm? Well, let's see. Um, uh, well, I think that the, uh, the idea I'm not sure what their original idea was, and I'm not sure that they all agreed about what it should be, to be honest. The way Swarm originally was, it was a, a programming library written for people who used the language Objective-C. And Objective-C was, uh, uh, it's the language that the Apple operating system was written in, and um, it was the language that before it, the next step operating system used. and. I really like it because uh, it's it's uh, it's the C language with the with a very simple set of extensions to allow you to think of uh, things off in the computer's memory as self-encapsulated uh, objects. So um, 
Swarm started out as an Objective-C framework which had the, the following main purposes. Number one, um, it had a set of random number generators that were, well, not prone to the mistakes that were common at that time in simulations and statistical distributions that use those random numbers. It had uh, a scheduling framework so that you could design a model that was either of two types. The, uh, you could design an ordinary type of simulation model in which uh, all of the agents are thought of as pieces on a checkerboard and they all do something at, at the same time or one after the other. So that standard kind of scheduling system existed in addition, there's a, a, the, one of the big innovations in Swarm is this idea of a dynamic event-driven schedule where something happens at one spot and it triggers an event that happens, say, two or three time steps in the future at some other spot. And so you can have a, a leapfrogging of events through time. And then Swarm had this uh, uh, graphical interface through which you can interact with uh, simulations if you choose to. So that was the original system. It was written for Unix computers. And if you didn't know about Unix, uh, you couldn't use Swarm, frankly. And so that was when I was a Windows user. I was an avid believer in Windows 95. I was in the beta program for that. So it was a little bit of a stressful experience for me to change from using Windows to using Linux. But after I understood the difference, I never regretted changing over because Windows just seems horrible in retrospect. But anyway, at the beginning, Swarm was this set of tools that you could use to write programs in the language Objective-C. Then uh, the Java language was introduced. And um, uh, there was a lot of uh, um, curiosity from people who used Microsoft Windows and a lot of curiosity from people who were learning this new language, Java, to see if it could work with Swarm. So in 1998 or so, uh, Marcus Daniels was the lead programmer on the, um, on the effort to make Swarm run on the Windows framework that's known as SigWin. SigWin is a free toolkit that can be installed in Windows systems. Inside this uh, SigWin environment, you can uh, compile Unix programs and run them a as if you had a Unix computer. So uh, Swarm became usable to people on who have Windows. And then two years after that, uh, Marcus Daniels used the, the so-called Java Native Interface to allow people who write programs in Java to access the features of Swarm. And uh, there were examples of several classic Swarm programs that had been written originally in Objective-C that were translated and written in Java so that if somebody was a, uh, an avid Java programmer, they could uh, uh, study those examples and then see what to do in order to make their own models. The, the Java support in Swarm was mature in about 2001 or, or so, maybe 2000. After that, uh, Marcus Daniels uh, started working on uh, a scheme to allow people who write in C++ or um, other generalized uh, other languages to interact with Swarm through this uh, 
it's something it's like kind of like a Corva environment it's a micro like microsoft.net potentially could talk to swarm and so I don't think that that work has ever been completely finished but if you happen to be an avid C++ programmer and there are some in Australia that do this you can make a, C, a program in C++ talk to the swarm libraries to uh, to get your job done now, in terms of the breadth of users and uses for Swarm, can you give some discussion to that and give some examples of third-party users of Swarm? Sure. Um, my my colleagues in political science think that it's it's quite funny that I, I co-authored a paper on ballet dancing. Um, in this ballet model, we have little agent dancers who decide which steps to take up and where to go on the basis of where they've been on the dance floor and what the other dancers are doing about them. And then my co-author turned this into a little animated movie of stick figures doing pirouettes. So uh, you can you can use Swarm to represent individual agents doing basically anything you're interested in. So um, the, stock, the simulation of the stock market was one of the famous simulations done at the Santa Fe Institute, um, and there's a swarm version called the ASM, the Artificial Stock Market. Um, I, I had an article about that in Social Science Computer Review. Um, the, there are people, I get emails from people um, who want help with projects that are medical related. People are simulating the the movement or interaction inside your body of your of your organs so sometimes the simulations that people are doing are are you know very fine-grained uh, thinking about uh, enzymes in the liver which I don't you know I can't tell you anything about why it was meaningful but uh, uh, there are uh, um, there's a uh, ecologist named uh, Steve Railsback, who I met when I first started working on Swarm, he was a beginner uh, just like I was. And he has just had phenomenal success using Swarm models to represent the movement of fishes inside um, rivers and, and dams. And he gets research projects funded to study the movement of fish in the Pacific Northwest. Um, there was a large National Science Foundation-funded project in the Biocomplexity Initiative about uh, four years ago this started at University of Michigan, the Complex Systems Center there, and several uh, people from several other units had a very large grant, several hundreds of thousands or perhaps even millions of dollars, and they were developing a very detailed simulation model of the growth of the urban areas and their impact on the environment in Michigan. I know that the people who do economics and financial markets have put out either two or three different volumes of SORM models written studying uh, exchange and trade. Um, maybe one of the most uh, famous simulation models for social scientists is, is the one by uh, Epstein and Axtell. It, it's in a book from Brookings called the Growing Artificial Societies. and. That's the, a model of a stylized society in which agents try to accumulate sugar, which represents wealth, and they dissipate sugar as they uh, go about their affairs and possibly either die or, or they prosper. And there's a, a swarm version of the sugar scape or sugar space. 
one of the favorite simulation models for me is about um, uh, forests. Uh, Melissa Savage, a uh, professor at UCLA, um, was in a team that uh, developed this uh, Arbor, Arbor Games model in which uh, there are as many different kinds of trees as you would like to consider. And they all have different features about how many seeds that they emit under what conditions and whether they grow, if they're exposed to too much uh, weather or sun or too many uh, close crowding trees. And um, once the, you can uh, insert forest fires to study the impact uh, of forest fires on the, um, the growth of particular species in a forest and, and you can study the su sustainability of diverse trees. You, you've touched on the use of swarm as an ALIFE model in the social sciences. Right. Have you seen any other ALIFE programs used in the social sciences and what more would you like to see from ALIFE developers in terms of things that can be useful in the social sciences? Well, I may be, um, uh, I may be in the minority on this. I'm not a big fan of Java, so um, for example, at the University of Chicago, they, uh, an, alter, uh, an alternative uh, swarm-like program developed called REPAST, R-E-P-A-S-T, and it was originally uh, presented as the Java version of uh, uh, swarm. It has basically the same ideas, although, you know, like uh, it's like anything else that you've let programmers be in charge of. Uh, it changes and grows in a way that's rather like artificial life. Uh, Repast uh, now is uh, quite elaborate uh, as a framework, and it involves several different uh, programming languages, and they're recommending that if you're going to write your simulation now, you use uh, Python with objects. So um, Repast is, is pretty well pretty well known and, and well regarded. Um, I, don't, uh, I don't have such good experience with Java as a language, so... I can't get really excited about that. I would say that after Repast and Swarm, the most frequently used framework for simulation is none at all. The people, um, uh, many of the people doing these models just think they'll, they'll write it down with C++ and, and, uh, and, and be done with it. Um, now, of course, they're, they're passing up the opportunity to work within a common framework, so they can't, their work can't be inspected in the same way that it could if you use one of the toolkits. But uh, I'm, af I'm afraid of giving people a toolkit with too, much, um, uh, too many advanced features because uh, if you give it to people who don't understand what they're doing, they will, they will just take it and, and try and use it for every problem, whether it's suitable or not. Um, I'm reminded of uh, the introduction of SPSS, uh, it was a computer package uh, in the 60s, a statistical package for the social sciences. It still exists today. It's very well marketed. Uh, when SPSS came out, social science was changed in a, in a, in a way that wasn't altogether good. Um, it was as if we set loose a whole bunch of junior high students with a hammers looking for nails. And so our journals became filled up with examples of things SPSS could do as uh, versions of social science. And uh, I'm, I'm not uh, entirely confident that was a good idea. So um, I'm skeptical about, about these uh, people who talk about creating a, a simulation paradigm that non-programmers can use. 
because I think that what that will end up um, doing is taking whatever examples programmers create and the social scientists will begin to reinterpret the things they do in light of those program examples. If you if you've ever if you've ever run Swarm or you look at the website, you'll know that it comes with certain example programs. There's one called Heatbugs that Chris Langton wrote, and in Heatbugs, what happens is there are these little uh, agents called bugs who emit heat, and then uh, some of the bugs think that their current position is too hot for them, so they run away from their own heat, and other agents are too cold, so they go to find the heat that the other agents create. And uh, you can interact with these models and make the bugs hotter or colder or want it to be hotter or colder. And you can watch them as they uh, uh, search about for the, just the right temperature. So once you see these swarm examples like heat bugs, then if you really don't understand what you're doing, you end up going out to the world and, and uh, looking at something, and then, you, and then you end up straining the metaphor of the heat bugs to apply to whatever problem you study. So uh, I think that uh, for, for social science, or maybe for any kind of science, well, we don't necessarily need uh, highly refined tools to, to work on specific kinds of things. Um, I think what we, what we need is uh, help at learning how to, how to program and how to use general purpose libraries and uh, help in uh, explaining ourselves to each other if you can see the difference. Maybe feeding into that, but maybe as an abstract question as well, what more would you like to see with the artificial life community? Well, uh, how long has this been going on now? Fifteen years, maybe? Um, I think that it's, it's about time where uh, we, we should start to have a coalescing of um, uh, understanding about what is different about this kind of research and what's not different. So, um, uh, if you, have you seen that book that Stephen Wolfram uh, wrote, uh, I guess, two years ago now? It's called A Different, a Different Kind of Science, A New Kind of Science. It's a, it's a very large book. In fact, it's, a, it's such a large book that, that one, one of the students in my department replaced the monitor stand with that book. Um, it's just a voluminous statement of everything Wolfram uh, believes he found out by studying cellular automata and very simple ones at that. Um, if, if the, that's certainly part of artificial life, what most people think of as artificial life. Um, what, what I wish we could get from artificial life is, a, is it, instead of a, a quirky examples of funny things, like uh, when I think of artificial life, I think of Chris Langton's uh, virtual ants, and I think of Tom Ray's uh, um, uh, computer simulation model where the uh, the programs try to develop their own code to take over as much CPU as possible. And I think of uh, Stuart Kaufman studies on the origins of life. So those are those are some basic ones that I think of in that framework. And what what I really wish we uh, we could get is a is a coherent understanding of what are the benefits from looking at things in this way. What are we finding out that's different? Um, the problem is that when, when the people who understand those models um, consider trying to work out the, the connections that we need to understand, e they, they, either they think it's too obvious to write it down, 
or they try to write it down in a way that translates it into the jargon of the older scientific paradigms. Uh, sometimes they'll try to uh, translate it into the old system dynamics terminology from the 50s and 60s. And um, uh, uh, so it's a little bit frustrating to try and explain to people what, what is useful about this way of thinking. Now, I do believe that there are some very deep insights in it, but um, many of them are, are lost to ambiguity. This, this phrase that's attributed to either Stu Cochran or Chris Langton about life evolving to the edge of chaos, um, there's a very deep insight in Langton's work that leads up to that claim, but my guess is that 90% or 95% of the people who use that term uh, don't have the same understanding of it that Langton originally did, or maybe they don't even understand each other. And so uh, what I'm afraid of is that the community develops a lot of ever um, ever more interesting anecdotes and examples, but uh, we're not really very well very clear on where this is all where, the, where this is all supposed to go as an academic paradigm. Any final thoughts for the interview? I, maybe you will have some social scientists who, who listen to this. Um, the, the most wonderful thing I've learned from interacting with natural scientists and computer programmers is that if you ask an intelligent question that reveals you've made an effort, strangers, people that you don't know and may never meet, will really go out of their way to try to help you uh, solve your problem. And so if you, if you feel that you would like to learn how to write a program or study artificial life, uh, you have to dig around on the Internet and Google and read email archives and, and, and try to, try to uh, figure out as best you can uh, what you want to study. But when you ask a question, you'll be stunned at the famous or, or uh, helpful people that come out of the woodwork to answer questions for you. And uh, it's been a really wonderful thing because when I started asking questions about Swarm, uh, Chris Langton, who at the time to me was kind of a mythological hero, when I ask a question and uh, a few minutes later Chris Langton posts the answer, uh, it was uh, really delightful for me. And um, uh, if people get started, there are other people waiting to help. And then once people get a, a foothold, they should uh, you know, make a commitment to help the new guys. Many thanks for the opportunity to interview you. Oh, thank you.